0: in Survival Radio Network. Good afternoon and welcome
1: to the Weekly Wellness Show. I am your host, pharmacist, physician, entrepreneur, Dr. Erwin Williams. The Weekly Wellness Show, your resource for better health here on the Survival Radio Network. Hey, I hope you are having a great week. How's your day coming? Did you get your exercise in this morning? I did. I didn't want to. It's raining where I am, but I had to stay motivated, and I had to remember some of the things that we've talked about on this show. It's fall. The leaves are falling. But we cannot fall off of our intended health and fitness plan. So I hope today you have a exciting day planned with some exercise, as well as some fun. you got to have fun. Life is too short not to have fun, so you got to include that. The other thing I want to see, if you are taking advantage of some of the tips that we gave earlier in the fall regarding gardening, you know, this is a good time of the year to plant some good, healthy vegetables. So we had a great show a while back on fall gardening. So if you missed it, you can go back and listen to it. Just go to our Uh, Facebook page at the Weekly Wellness Show. Remember, your health is your wealth, so no excuses. I'd like to thank our listeners past and present and welcome our latest listeners from Ethiopia. Uh, We welcome you to the show and to the fan Facebook page. Now, last week we had a good show. We had Dr. Eddie Island on, and we talked about the importance of organ donation, but he explained the process. He went through organ donation as well as transplantation. So remember, one donor, just one donor can save eight lives. That's eight lives. So, you know, think about it. Not everyone is on board with it, but we feel that if you get educated on it, you may consider it and help someone else. We also had wellness expert Carmen Lazan on talking about those triggers, triggers that would cause you not to stick to your diet or health plan. Now everyone has their weaknesses. I have mine. I told you last week, you know, hey, all you gotta do is put a warm box of Krispy Kreme donuts in front of me and we I will have a problem because sometimes I cannot resist. So she talked about those triggers. Triggers meaning the environment and the kind of things that you do that may l- let you or lead you to let your guard down so if you missed that go back and listen to our show from last week we've had some great shows with great guests if you missed any just go to www.weeklywellnessshow.com scroll down to our logo it's orange and green and you'll see several shows and you can just pick the one that you like to listen to or guess what if you think somebody else could benefit from it, you can always share that show. We're also on iTunes, so it'll be great if you went to the iTunes icon on your phone, subscribe to the show, and in that way, the shows come to you automatically. There's no charge, and you get to stay updated. And then you can listen to the show anytime you want to, the podcast. So whether you're working out, walking the dog, walking in the park, or running, You can still listen to the show. Now, next week, you know, the opioid epidemic is a big deal in this country, and I'm not sure it's getting better. I think it will. But next week I'm going to have a guest on to talk about their program to help people get through and get over their opioid addiction. So I promise you that's going to be a great show because we're going to be providing some solutions. Now, next month, you know, uh, is November, it's going to be an exciting, action-packed next month. It's going to be Diabetes Awareness Month, so I've asked podiatrist and foot surgeon Dr. Sanisha Davis to come on to talk about diabetic foot care. And we're also going to be talking about another hot topic that's going on in our country with regard to marijuana. <laughs> that's medical <laughs> marijuana, that is. And I'm going to have an expert in this area, Dr. Nefertiti Aduni, on we're going to be talking about the benefits of medical marijuana. And besides the fact that I'll be going to Ghana next month, specifically Accra, to do some health care consulting, it's going to be a great month involving November. Now, this month, as you know, we're winding down another annual Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's been pretty good. We had a couple of shows this month with a couple of guests. So it's been pretty exciting. So, we invite you to tune into those. Now, if you have any questions or topic ideas, don't hesitate to email me at Dr. Aaron Williams at Weekly You can also follow me on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Williams and don't forget to join our Facebook page. Now, today I have another exciting and informative show for you with some spectacular topics and dynamic guests. You know, according to the American Cancer Society, This year, about 3,000 or close to 3,000 men will be diagnosed with breast cancer. We've been talking about breast cancer all month, but, you know, a lot of us know, and rightfully so, it's very common that we see breast cancer in women. But there is a percentage of men in this country that get breast cancer. In fact, close to about 500 men would die this year. Because of breast cancer. So, we're going to be discussing that in our second segment. I brought an expert on to talk about this because she has treated men with breast cancer, and that is Dr. Denise Gooch. She is a radiation oncologist practicing in Maryland, so she'll be on in our second segment. Now, our first segment, we're going to be talking about mental health. You know, according to the CDC, this year, 65 million visits will be made to physician offices with patients who have mental health disorders as their primary diagnosis. Five million visits will be made to the emergency departments alone. So I've invited Philip Saunders, registered pharmacist. He's not a stranger to this show. In fact, Philip Saunders has been – he was on our first show several months back, and he – has an interest in this area. He's also also author of the book, The Handbook of Prescription Plan Benefits. He's going to be on in our first segment to talk about mental health from a pharmacist's perspective and how pharmacists and your involvement with pharmacists can handle this epidemic. So with that, we'll go to our first commercial break, and we come back. We'll get into these topics, so ladies and gentlemen, please stay tuned and be informed. Looking for a cafe with a home like appeal where all who enter feel like they are a part of something? visit my coffee shop located in east lake atlanta georgia
0: mcs has a full breakfast and lunch menu offering both hot and cold options and is home of the amazing basil lemonade but don't forget the assortment of freshly brewed coffees come on by at twenty four sixty two memorial drive
1: atlanta georgia three zero three one seven we're pretty sure my coffee shop at east lake will become your coffee shop too iDope
2: iDope, globally inspired vision style wear a fusion of classic heritage and contemporary sophistication. An essential part of your lifestyle and fashion expression. I Dope iDope. Vision style wear for the fashion forward and socially conscious. Let's make this a dope world together. iDope iDope. Available online at idope.com. That's E-Y-E-D-O-P-E. IDope.com. Survival Radio Network, with now more than 1 million downloads. Congratulations to the staff, producers, engineers, and hosts for your tireless pursuit of excellence. And thank you, our loyal listeners, for supporting this movement to inspire, motivate, and educate people worldwide. Survival Radio Network, Survival Radio Christian Network, and our new Survival Sports Radio Network broadcast top-notch shows Sunday through Saturday. Check us out by visiting our website at www.survivalradionetwork.us.
0: SRN, we do radio one million strong the s r n
1: welcome back welcome back it's splendid to have you listening to us today here on the weekly wellness show your resource for Better Health here on the Survival Radio Network. Now, I have the distinct pleasure of being your host. I'm Dr. Aaron Williams. Now, our first guest today, as I mentioned earlier, is Mr. Philip Saunders. He is a graduate of the esteemed Florida A&M University College of Pharmacy and College of Pharmaceutical Sciences. He's also a pharmacy owner, and he's also the author of the book, The Handbook of Prescription Plan Benefits. As I mentioned earlier, he's been on the show before, bringing us some top health and wellness information from a pharmacist's perspective. So today he's going to talk to us about mental health. So without further ado, let's welcome to the show pharmacist and author Mr. Philip Saunders.
0: Hello, Dr. Williams, and hello, everyone. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Good, good, good. Uh, I am so glad that you are able to join us today and put us on your busy schedule. Uh, I know that you have a lot of things going on with the book and, and, of course, practicing pharmacy and taking care of patients. But So I'd like to extend that grateful appreciation for that. So how are things uh, in the realm of pharmacy?
0: Well, things are moving uh, quite speedily, as is the pace of our lives today for most of us. And um, I'm sure when you mentioned the topic mental health earlier, there were some people who said, hey, well, I'll just skip through that, or that doesn't do <laughs> Right. <laughs> or perhaps, you know, this might be something that uh, I can just bypass because that's really not, you know, maybe in the past and so forth. But uh, quite incidentally, couple of weeks ago i was on my way to a convention in the local community for pharmacy mm. and topics with psychiatry and mental health and on that morning before i left town to make that drive we actually had an emergency call in our family and in a very personal nature we had one of our close friends that had contemplated suicide to the extent that she was on the bridge wow wow so, um, there are there are Varying circumstances, you know, if any of you are out there, uh, I'm a personal chef, you know, self-proclaimed chef that is, chef that is, and I can tell you sometimes when you have that pot on, you might have something that's on that's simmering, you might have something that's in the oven that's taking a while, and you might have something that's in the skillet that's really sizzling. So the point is that there are different circumstances and different stages that Mm -hmm. you might assess and respond appropriate in order that things don't go awry. So in kind with mental health issues, um, I'm just going to state some statistics, and these were presented in research I gathered from a uh, Mental Health America, which is a, um, an organization in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, also these statistics are very common, and we're going to go further and talk about how they impact our lives and how they affect our community indirectly for uh, patients or or scenarios that we never think about, such as police officers officers encountering a population of mentally uh, impaired patients per se in the mental health community or in the criminal community. As a matter of fact, it's uh, estimated that 1.2 million individuals living with mental illness sit in jail and prison each year. Mm. So this is a significant problem. Uh, And, of course, we'll talk further a little later about things such as access to uh, mental health resources or just to get some help. Some further key findings, it's considered a fact that one in five adults have a mental health condition, and that has to be qualified when we say that. It could be something such as a prolonged depression. It doesn't have to be something that's complex that may be initiated from childhood. But in many cases, childhood has an impact on things. But that translates, that number, one in five adults, that translates into over 40 million Americans that have some degree of mental illness that in some cases would require professional intervention. And not only that, but it also impacts our youth. It said that in uh, 2011, about 8.5% of our youth suffered from depression, and in 2014, 11.1%. Personally, as an older adult and as a uh, parent of a new millennial participant, a lot of times access and technology allow um, scenarios such as bullying to become heightened mm-hmm. And inflame, and so this statistic may have an impact by that particular uh, contributing factor, that is bullying, vis-a-vis, uh, internet and other sources. Right. So today, what I'd like to do, Dr. Williams, is discuss five key factors about mental health. Um, okay. The first thing I'd like to mention and point out is that many cultures or communities stigmatize people with mental health issues. And thus, intervention or request for help is, lessened, is less likely that someone will say, oh, no, I, I'll be okay. How you doing? I'm good. This is a colloquial phrase. You've heard these phrases right. in your circle of friends. I'm good. Okay, well, Jimmy, you know, uh, something traumatic just happened. You just had an accident. You lost your foot. These kind of things. But because of stigma attached to mental health, um, And the presumptive despair associated with that, that is, what do I do? Uh, Can I be cured? These kind of questions. People don't seek help. Mm -hmm. Um, Many people, tens of thousands of people, have clinically significant mental health symptoms that go undiagnosed and untreated. Uh, Again, we'll go back to the law enforcement population. You know, um, police, as we know, have a very difficult and challenging job. And uh, we won't get into the commentary about the quality of police work and so on and so forth. But by and large, uh, when we encounter individuals that are acting on a behavior path or pattern that's either injurious to them or someone else, the police are um, employed to get involved. So we encounter people, and they have to have, uh, in the ideal scenario, they'll have experience with how to manage a person that is mentally impaired. And some of these other factors we'll get into uh, later, there was a connotation there when I say impaired as opposed to a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, third point, employers, family members, friends, and religious colleagues can be helpful potential uh, sources for people to access mental health um, help when these people recognize symptoms that are inconsistent perhaps with past behavior or that are just uh, totally uh, aberrant behavior acts that may be occurring while this person, this employer, family member, friend is interacting with a potential patient. Um, Another fact is that teens and young adults have mental um, health issues and challenges that are more or less associated with that phase in their life where they're experimenting, they're trying to an identity and so forth through their adulthood. Uh, that's a hopeful time, but it's also a time for research and discovery. Uh, things like alcohol and drug use and sometimes family dysfunction can play into that mixture. And so uh, we should not be um, perhaps have a cliche mindset to say that's just a phase that they're going through. For most people, it requires at least a checkup, just like you get a physical. How many times have you heard someone say, hey, let's go and have you talk to someone and make sure everything is all right? There's nothing aberrant occurring, but we're going to get a physical for our mental health just like we would our physical health. Right. The last point or factor that I think would be worthy of mentioning would be that um, access to therapy, uh, sometimes can have barriers. There could be financial barriers in the case of somebody without insurance, um, and there might be access ports that are available through employment, which is great. I would implore people that are listening, uh, even if you're a friend, you can refer them to this reference, to call your employer and see if some mental health – most most um, employers have a program – called uh, Employee Assistance Program, EAP. And this is a basic colloquial phrase, you know, and and it's, and it's nothing to, to say that, hey, every once in a while you need to talk with someone and make sure that your perspectives, your outlook on life, your plans in life, and uh, some of your behaviors kind of fall in line with what might be acceptable. Uh, because when a person is suffering from a mental impairment, we have a phrase that uh, I've heard. Some of my friends' philosophy. We talk from uh, viewing the picture from inside the frame. Sometimes you're not in a position. When you're impaired, we know when you have anxiety. It's been shown. Um, in fact, I heard it on. I saw read it on a LinkedIn um, comment or article some weeks ago. It says that uh, a person who is depressed is uh, more likely to make poor decisions. So even in the workplace. Employers have an interest in investment in mental health for the community. Right. Well, what are some
1: things that we can do to uh, be aware uh, that might help in this scenario?
0: Well, um, I thought about a few things, and um, the first thing I think we need to do that would give us some perspective is realize that mental health or mental illness, rather, can occur in any population. And you know, sometimes we feel that perhaps the clergy or policemen or professionals or someone that's in a certain age group or maybe someone that we have a certain relationship with our parents and so forth. It might be a child who recognized uh some pattern of uh or symptom of mental illness in a parent or older relative. Right. Um there are they do have a um Number of sources that can help when patients are uh, or, or, or loved ones are in this uh, observing type of uh, behavior. Uh, so we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. One of the other things that we recognize uh, or have to pay attention to is that a life crisis can trigger a mental health urgency. For example, the death of a loved one. In the case of a childbearing woman or someone through the end of the childbearing phase, a miscarriage. All these things are very traumatic, and we're familiar with these things, of course. There are other things that could uh, also trigger what you might call as an urgency, something I would consider urgency would be uh, something that's a very apparent, aberrant behavior event, Uh, perhaps sitting in the car overnight in front of their house for no reason for example. That's hypothetical. But um, we have to be vigilant. I I suggest. uh, I know sometimes when people have a natural defense mechanism to say, oh, no, 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 uh, I'm okay. But to uh, not convince, not debate a person, but to lovingly nurture a person to the point where they make a decision, a joint decision to go and just talk to someone. It doesn't have to be something where you're going to put them into a scenario where the next week, the next day, they're going to be on medication. This is a big paradigm, and there are other sources other than medication, even though I'm the pharmacist, that we could actually um, suggest to patients that are helpful.
1: Right. now, What are some of those tips, pharmacist tips, that okay. folks can well, remember?
0: One thing, one thing I would say is that when we're visiting the physician, make sure that we take Uh, all of the information concerning our medicines, our home remedies, supplements, even topical agents that you use, all these can have an impact and, and give the physician information for your overall picture that will help them provide the best therapy for you. Also, when you have an opportunity to go into the pharmacy with your new medication to help you get better or do better, have a personal consultation with the pharmacist about the realistic expectation of drug therapy and what would be suggested when side effects are just unbearable. Actually, I had a personal conversation last evening with a new patient, and what we generally stipulate in pharmacy is that give it about eight to ten weeks for your therapy to begin to have uh, some clinically significant differences in how you might feel and so forth. And that assessment may have to be done periodically by your professional. Right, right.
1: Well, yeah, I think these are very important, and I think uh my issue and my point is the fact that studies have shown that physicians well, patients come into more contact with the pharmacists a lot of times than they do physicians, and so the public and patients need to realize also that hey. You know, that pharmacist behind your counter is there for you. And if there is a problem, particularly if you can't get in touch with your doctor right away, because we know, I know as a physician that happens a lot, that they can also consult their pharmacist and view this pharmacist as an asset and a pivotal partner in their overall care, particularly in mental health. So I think this is very important, um, and and I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, you know, bringing it to us from a pharmacist's perspective. Well, I, I'm glad I'm glad you're able to come on the show. Uh, Fill it with another, with many other great tips regarding mental health and this. You know, we all realize that mental health is is an epidemic. Uh, a lot of people, like you said, are not able to address it. Uh, but I think you know the reason for this comment and this these comments in this segment is to try to open the door and educate people on this.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Williams.
1: Okay. Well, we greatly appreciate your time. You know, we've got to have you back at some point to discuss another great pharmaceutical topic. So uh, we're glad that you're able to come by and talk to us today. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to go ahead and take our second commercial break. So please stay tuned and be in.
0: Do you have a business, product, service, or an event coming up? Is your current marketing getting you nowhere? Survival Radio Network is an award-winning network with over 1 million downloads. We're offering high-exposure 30-second spots on our network, reaching diverse demographics both locally and nationwide. Give us a call at 323-977-8172 or visit our website at www.survivalradionetwork.us today. SRN, we do radio. That's www.lbtaxservice.com. L&B Tax Service Incorporated,
2: tax professionals that you can trust.
0: Do you know that having a dirty filter in your heating and air system can cause major damage to your unit and include the air in your home? Having proper maintenance to your heating and air system is just like getting a tune-up on your car. Because you'll want today and avoid spending unnecessary money tomorrow. Call Temperature Design Heating and Air Today. 770-823-7160. That's 770-823-7160. Hi, I'm Ryan Seacrest for RAD. Over 300 people in this country are killed every week by a drunk driver. That's the equivalent of two 747 plane crashes every single week. And the problem isn't going away unless we all do our part to stop it. So if you see someone who's about to drive after drinking, get the keys... Don't leave it up to anyone else. Friends don't let friends drive drunk.
2: A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council.
0: Ah, The S R N.
1: as you are listening to the Weekly Wellness Show, your resource for better health here on the Survival Radio Network. I am elated and happy to be your host. I'm Dr. Aaron Williams. In our second segment, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to wind down the annual October Breast Cancer Awareness Month with a topic that is sometimes often neglected, still remains real And that is breast cancer in men So I always like to have an expert in the area Come and talk to you about certain things And today is no exception Today I've asked Dr. Denise Gooch To come and talk to us about this Now, Dr. Gooch did her undergraduate education At George Washington University in Washington, D.C. She then went on to medical school At Georgetown University School of Medicine after she finished, she did her internship in Ohio and did her residency at Ohio State University, that is the Ohio State University. And for those of you who don't know, they're famous for their James Cancer Hospital. And that's where she trained and did her residency as well as did a fellowship. She was actually the chief resident there. She did her work there and then went on into private practice. She's currently practicing in Maryland. She treats several different types of cancer. She is also board certified by the American College of Radiology. Now, Dr. Gooch believes excellent patient care is her primary focus. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I'd like to welcome to the weekly wellness show, Dr. Denise. Gooch.
2: Wow, Doctor Williams, that was quite an introduction. Thank you. Oh, uh,
1: well, you know, Doctor Gooch, it's not too hard when it's factual. <laughs> and
2: you
1: I <laughs> I greatly appreciate you you're carving out some time to come by the Weekly Wellness Show to kinda of help us in this scenario. As I mentioned earlier, you know, uh and one of our colleagues, Doctor Raymond Wynn, mentioned on one of his interviews that now, breast cancer uh, gets a whole lot of, uh, and rightfully so, gets a whole lot right. of awareness during the month of October. Uh, but I think one of the things that's sometimes overlooked, and that is that breast cancer can occur in men. So,
2: yeah, absolutely is, right.
1: Is that something that you find in your practice, uh, Dr. Gooch?
2: Well, it's interesting you should ask that, uh, Dr. Williams. I've actually treated three men with breast cancer.
1: Wow. And mm-hmm. one...
2: Yes, I've actually treated three, and one man in particular stands out. Really, they were all shocked, of course, to be diagnosed with breast cancer. And one man told me the only way he was diagnosed is that he did notice a lump in his breast. As you said, the problem is since men don't expect to be diagnosed with breast cancer, they have no idea what's going on if they notice a mass or a lump. He did notice one, and it just so happened he was married to a nurse. Exactly. So he brought it to her attention, and she immediately thought something is probably going on, insisted that he go and see his primary care doctor. They did a mammogram, and a lot of people aren't even aware of the fact that, yes, they can do mammograms on men. I actually, (laughs) she's one of the mammographers one time about that. I said, oh, you do mammograms on men? She said, If you got anything on there, trust me, we can get an image of it.
1: (laughs) Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. and I think that's why this segment is important because a lot of people don't realize that. And you know, and you know, granted, yeah, breast cancer is more common in women, but you know, and and and, you know, we always say that breast cancer in men is rare. But I like to say, hey, it's rare until you get it, (laughs) and when it's when you get it, it's no longer rare.
2: Now it's something you
1: have to deal with.
2: Exactly, because a lot of people don't realize everyone is born with a small amount of breast tissue, men and women, okay? It's just that Mm -hmm. once women hit puberty, of course, their breast tissue uh, enlarge and develop more, but for men, their breast tissue stays, quote-unquote, somewhat rudimentary, but they do have a small amount of breast tissue. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important if any man sees any changes, even in his small breasts, any redness, any swelling. If his nipple starts turning inward, if there's any discharge, that he bring it to his uh, family's doctor's attention. It's so critical and so important.
1: Right. Yeah. It's estimated about uh, 2,500 new cases will be uh, diagnosed this year. Uh right. And you know that's not that's that's a smaller number compared to women. But again, when it's your father, when it's your brother, it matters. And when it's you, it, it matters. And uh, what, what are, how many men would you estimate that that pass away or die of this of breast cancer?
2: Yeah, it's fun, it's ironic. I looked at the statistics, and according to the American Cancer Society, you're absolutely correct. Even though only twenty three or twenty four hundred men are diagnosed, unfortunately, four hundred and thirty of those men will die. That's eighteen percent of those men. So that's wow. a very high percentage. So right. that in yeah. itself tells you that, yes, you're right. It's rare, but the mortality rate is much higher when you consider for a woman diagnosed with breast cancer, if she's undergoing mm-hmm. treatment, only 3 to 4% of women die of their disease a year. So that's what, wow. six times greater percentage? Yeah. So, yeah, that's very significant.
1: That is, yeah, that is pretty, pretty good size there. Well, Dr. Gooch, what are some of the risk factors? you know, for males uh, getting breast cancer?
2: That's an excellent question, Dr. Williams. Actually, they looked at that, the American Cancer Society as well as uh, Mm the CDC, and they have noticed that, number one, there tends to be a family history of breast cancer. One in every five men who are diagnosed with breast cancer actually have another family member who has breast cancer. So that's 20% of men. So it's not insignificant. And, what? of course, I always say that everyone's heard of this BRCA1, BRCA2, the right. Angelina Jolie gene. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. that's, not good, but it's, that's what everyone thinks of it. Unfortunately, men who actually are carriers for the BRCA2 gene in particular have mm. an increased risk of breast cancer, whereas the normal risk, we say is one in a thousand for just the general population, Unfortunately, men who had this mutation, it's six in 100.
1: So that's
2: a much higher risk of, unfortunately, developing male breast cancer.
1: Mm, So family history does matter in this scenario. Right,
2: absolutely. That's why it's so important for any type of uh, medical condition that we know our family history, but in particular to know your family history about breast cancer. And I just think just because a mother or a sister had breast cancer that unfortunately mm-hmm. that you as a man could not develop breast cancer because unfortunately that is an increased risk. Right. And BRCA1 uh, and 2 can be carried by males and females. Men or women can be carriers for that gene.
1: Wow, that's right. That's exactly right. Well, are there other, you know, conditions, uh, or, or other risk factors uh, that may predispose a man right. to have breast cancer?
2: Excellent question. There's actually a medical condition, it's a congenital condition, it's called Kleinfelter syndrome.
1: Hmm. Oh, yeah, That's
2: another rare, hmm. exactly. And what what it is is that everyone, at least every man has an XY. X from their mother, Y right. from the father that defines a man. Men with Klein filters tend to have extra Xs, anywhere from two to more X chromosomes. So they believe that men that carry that extra X chromosome have an increased risk of getting breast cancer. Now they can't really formally document that, since that's already a rare condition, about 1 in 1,000 men, but when they actually look at men who are diagnosed, there is a higher proportion of men who have this condition that are diagnosed with breast cancer, and they're actually thinking that instead of the 1 in 1,000, it may be 1 in 100, so that's still not quite as high as the BRCA2, but still Mm -hmm. higher than the general population. Then there's other factors. They Mm. look at men with liver disease. Uh, The liver is very important in uh, the way your body metabolizes sex hormones. So if a man has severe cirrhosis, he unfortunately could have higher circulating estrogen levels, which could increase his risk of developing breast cancer also. Because they tend to develop um, gynecomastia, which is benign breast growth, and they think that could actually also increase their risk of breast cancer. Right. And a few other things. Um, Unfortunately, certain occupations, it's kind of like, hopefully, I won't be frightening anyone. Uh Oh,
0: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's kind of like. Uh, But if it's a risk, it's a a a risk. risk. Exactly. I don't
2: want to frighten anyone. But some reports have suggested that men who work in steel mills may also have an increased risk. And they think wow. that may be related to hormonal levels and the increased temperatures that a man's um organs could be exposed to that could also increase his risk of mm-hmm. having male breast cancer. Also men who are maybe in some of the textile industries and um exposed to gasoline fumes, they also may have an increased risk of developing uh, male, uh, male breast cancer.
1: Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's something to worry of. What's yeah. There?
2: Uh Yeah, exactly. Definitely things to be aware of and to think about. Uh, Years ago, thank goodness this doesn't happen too often now, but uh, for men who were diagnosed with certain medical conditions, they used to prescribe estrogen therapy, especially men with metastatic prostate cancer. Um, As a physician, you know that. Unfortunately, that was shown to end is one of the reasons they stopped prescribing it. It it was shown to increase a man's risk of developing breast cancer. And also um, for people who are go- undergoing gender reassignment, if they are uh-huh. taking um, increased doses of female hormones, unfortunately also have an increased risk of developing male breast cancer.
1: Wow. It's amazing that you mentioned that because we talked about that in one of our shows earlier this month. Um, I think in our first segment we had um wonderful bait big on. We were talking about weight. We was talking about right. the relationship between weight, obesity, and right. cancer, and okay. uh, you know, and, and out of that, um, and, and we can extrapolate that to this: that men who are overweight or obese yes. appear to have an increased risk of breast cancer. So, it's one of those things right. where we, you know, put that with the with the with the fat cells that are that are helping to cause the increased levels of, of higher estrogen. So, uh, yeah, That's that again, it gets back down to those hormones.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. No, you're absolutely you
1: know, then, correct about that. Right. And then the other thing, uh, you know, I, I noted also was the fact that, you know, this is getting back to epidemiologic data. You know, African-American men have the highest uh, breast cancer incidence overall uh, for whatever reason we don't know and the highest right. mortality. And I, and I I think a lot of it probably has to do with hormones but also has to do with delayed um Uh, diagnosis and getting to the doctor
2: you're absolutely right Dr. Williams they've actually the CDC actually notes 1.8 men per 100,000 black men may will Mm -hmm. develop male breast cancer versus 1.2 white men per 100,000 so that in itself tells you right there and as you stated not only are black men more likely to get it they're usually diagnosed at a younger age and their mortality rate is greater unfortunately. So it's just bad all the way around. Right, yeah, exactly. right. Yeah, exactly.
1: And this seems to follow some of the some of the basic things with female cancer. So I remember when I was a medical student and I was doing surgery at Moffitt Cancer Center uh in at the University of South Florida. Was doing breast surgery and one of the attendings um uh uh called me to the to the operating area. And he said, he said, Aaron, what is strange about this patient? And I'm thinking yeah. of all the medical stuff. I'm thinking of all this anatomy that I see before me, and it was kind of oh, like yeah. a simple answer. The lady who we were operating on was Asian, and okay. it follows. So this follows along with some of the female, some of the uh, with female breast cancers. You know, mm-hmm. uh, women of Caucasian descent are the high, get the highest number of diagnoses with breast cancer, hey. but hey. African American men have women have a higher mortality but what I've also seen the Asians the incidence is lower uh, compared to the other populations so uh, so not saying that if you're Asian or a Pacific Islander you don't need to worry about it but there is a lower risk
2: and it's interesting you should mention that I've actually given some talks on female breast cancer since you brought it up now Uh in their native countries their incidence are very low but once they move to this country their actual incidence levels start approaching uh, women who are already uh, basically American women. So they can maybe start off with, like, less than 1% to 2% of women in their native countries, but their actual incidence markedly increases once they move here. So that's why you start considering maybe the diet. Of course, this is health and wellness. Exactly. Their diet and whatever they're exposed to while they're here. But that's actually something that's been documented over and over again.
1: Right, right. Well, Dr. Goose, what are some of those signs and symptoms? Um, You know, we talked about the risks and and that kind of thing and who may be at risk, but what should everybody be looking for?
2: Everyone, as you said, male or female, but definitely men since they have (laughs) less breast tissue, (laughs) Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. painless lump, okay? So men, while they're, you know, bathing, showering, and putting the soap and everything on their chest, a painless lump, especially near the area of their nipple, but anywhere in, even if men have rudimentary breast tissue. Also changes in the skin covering their breasts, so as well as dimpling, maybe some puckering, some redness, scaling, anything that looks different from the way his breast normally looks, especially when you look from one side to the other, anything that looks a little different. Any changes in the nipple, suddenly it becomes red. Or, as I mentioned earlier, if it looks like it's starting to turn inward, if normally his nipple is sitting as he normally looks and suddenly it seems like it's starting to invert, as well as a possible discharge from the nipple. That's something else that all of those should be a signal to anyone, male or female, of course, that that needs to be evaluated by their family physician.
1: Right, right. So it's kind of similar to female painless uh, lump or thickening, uh, changes in the nipple. Uh, yes. All of these can be can be symptoms in that a man should not um, risk this away just because it's right. there. These exactly. are the signs Definitely of Definitely
2: don't ignore it. Absolutely. Right. As I said, one of my patients, it was only because he brought it to the attention of his wife. And as I mentioned, she was a nurse, so she immediately mm-hmm. told him he needed to follow up with that and follow up with his family physician. Right. As a matter of fact. Right. they think one of the reasons that unfortunately the five year survival rate for male breast cancer is lower than the five year survival for women is because of delayed diagnosis men are diagnosed at a later stage than women because as you said they may brush off or ignore some of these symptoms
1: mm mm-hmm. well speaking of that you mentioned this earlier about mammograms movement you know okay. how do, how do you diagnose uh breast cancer in men is it any different uh what's the what's the Process involved with that? Right. Well,
2: that's an excellent question. Well, as we just mentioned, the first step, of course, you have to undergo medical evaluation. So, um, as I just mentioned, a man can get a mammogram, too. As a matter of fact, the patient that I was just mentioning, Whoa, he said he was I'm, sitting I'm there.
1: here in the chair here. But. I know, I know. So,
2: it's, it's similar to what he was saying. He said he's sitting there with a gown on, looking around, thinking, right. what on earth am I doing there? But they bring you in the room, and uh-huh. unfortunately, every woman can tell you. You stand there. So, the process is exactly the same for getting a mammogram. Uh-huh. There is compression of the breast tissue. One thing about it, since uh, most since men don't have that much breast tissue, m- almost all breast cancers in men are close to the nipple. So it usually okay. is not like women where it can be in the outer quadrant. Right. The most common one in women is in the upper outer quadrant, but in men it's going to be close to the nipple.
0: Right. So, so it's one a little
2: can say easier because because to see. Right.
1: So what so can say because breast. Uh, typically smaller in men that theoretically could be easy to, easier to be diagnosed uh, to a certain extent. Uh, you're right. So, so you're saying it's usually closer to the nipple area?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Pretty much all male breast cancers are going to be close to the nipple area because men don't have that much breast tissue. So right. if something, and almost all men, they're infiltrating As You know, as a physician, is different types. The most common is infiltrating ductal. You can have infiltrating lobular, but almost all male breast cancers are infiltrating ductal. And ironically, even though we're mm-hmm. probably not going to have time to go into it, most are hormone receptor positive too. So that has something to do with how they're actually treated after they have the surgery and possible chemotherapy and radiation. They're almost always put on hormonal blockers because almost always their tumors are hormone sensitive. hmm
1: Okay, so we've gone through the diagnosis and we've gone through this biopsy, which is you know surgery. <laughs> and just as you yeah, mentioned, exactly. what what's uh yeah, you mentioned hormone therapy? Start start us out with this treatment bit. I mean, is it is it pretty much the same as female? Uh, how does that? What is the treatment of breast cancer men?
2: Excellent question. Uh, Well, as we just said, the biopsy, okay, Mm -hmm. just to confirm, usually it's a needle core biopsy, similar to women. However, if there is a confirmed diagnosis of breast cancer, unlike women, they're not going to give them the option of lumpectomy versus mastectomy. Pretty much all men are going to have a mastectomy, which means removal of all the breast tissue. Remember, men don't have that much breast tissue, so they have to remove all of it to evaluate it. And almost always, the surgeon will also do a biopsy of the lymph nodes under the arm because the lymph nodes under the arm can drain any cancer that's found in the breast. So they have to take a look at that. So depending on the stage, uh, stage one is usually two centimeters, about an inch or smaller. Uh, Mm -hmm. Stage two can be a little bit larger or maybe a possible uh, involvement of the lymph nodes. The recommendation after the surgery is chemotherapy And radiation, and I say and or radiation, but I'll be honest with you, you were talking Uh about during your training, during my training, they always taught us, even though doing my own research recently, they don't mention that, but the way I was trained at the Arthur James Cancer Institute is Mm -hmm. that since male breast cancer is rare, and everyone isn't familiar with how to treat it, it's better to be more aggressive with male breast cancer, especially since their survival is less than women. Uh, The five-year survival for men is only 84% versus Mm -hmm. women, five-year survival is in the upper 90s. So we know that there's something working that's not working well for men. And the way I was taught that a stage one breast cancer should be treated like a stage three, and men should be treated like a stage three for women. Just treat it aggressively, Mm -hmm. make sure they get the adjuvant or after surgery, chemotherapy, and the adjuvant radiation and even if, especially if the sentinel node is positive, treat what we call the draining lymphatics, as I said, mm-hmm. because for whatever reason these men seem to have biology, something working against them. So you need to be as aggressive as possible to give them the best chance for survival.
1: Right. Well, you mentioned the hormonal aspect of this. Uh-huh. And we, You know, we've been right. talking about estrogen throughout this segment. Right. Uh, how does that play into the treatment portion? How does what are hormones? You know, we we we've kind of figured out the estrogen puts you at a higher risk. So right. how does the, how does therapy play into this with regard to hormonal therapy?
2: Exactly. Well, when we mention hormonal therapy, there are actually anti-estrogen medications. Uh-huh. So as I just mentioned, that most all male breast cancers are hormone receptor positive. So okay. that means that there is receptors on your cell, and if there are any circulating uh, hormones, estrogen hormones. Remember, I told you the risk of having excess right. estrogen circulating through your body. These these medications block those receptors, so any circulating estrogen cannot attach to these receptors and potentially grow and develop and you know cause metastatic disease or disease to spread throughout the body. So pretty much all men, if they are diagnosed with breast cancer after they undergo the adjuvant therapy, the chemotherapy, radiation, are placed on tamoxifen. Now, it's uh, interesting. Okay. I was actually researching this, and that's an anti-estrogen. Uh, it's kind of like it's an estrogen blocker, but it has some positive things, too. But it's interesting. There's other hormone anti-hormone therapy that women are oftentimes given, but apparently men are only prescribed tamoxifen because they obviously it's a rare cancer. So they don't have as much experience with some of the other uh, aromatase inhibitors or something like that in men. So pretty much all men are started on tamoxifen with the recommendation of at least five years
1: okay. and potentially
2: even more, just like they're doing with women, women nowadays.
1: Right. Well, now, I, I see in, in my practice uh, the women you know with, that's on tamoxifen. and, and do, do men get some of the same side effects of tamoxifen? Uh, and what are those side effects that you've seen in your practice uh, on hormonal right.
0: therapy?
2: Right. Well, as you said, the thing about it is for most men, I'll be honest with you, they're just so blown away. I mean, I'm just going <laughs> right. to They're so blown away with the diagnosis that they are really not sure what's happening to them, whether just the fact that they've, had, they've got breast cancer, they have to get chemotherapy, they're telling people about it. They just feel like they're some kind of unicorn anyway. So I'll be honest with you, most of the men that I see don't really complain of any the side effects of the tamoxifen. But the women, as you mentioned, now they will say something about they can have some, you know, swelling tenderness of the breast. Because even though it's an antiestrogen, it still has some pro-estrogen uh, components because it tends to be given to premenopausal women because they don't want to put them in complete menopause Mm-hmm. Um, also, for women, unfortunately, t- uh, being on tamoxifen can increase their risk of having endometrial cancer. Of course, it doesn't have to mend it uh-huh. on the uterus. Um, right, exactly. So that is the, exactly. So all women who are prescribed tamoxifen have to undergo an evaluation by their GYN doctor prior to being placed on tamoxifen, and if they notice any abnormal uterine bleeding or any um and the risk is not insignificant. It's about 10 to 15% of women who are on Tamoxifen, if they still have a uterus, can develop endometrial cancer.
1: Wow. Well, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely a factor. You know, right. you mentioned something earlier about the lymph nodes. Can you explain right. to everyone why and, and why is this, you know, it's one thing to do surgery on the breast, but in breast right surgery and staging, you know, surgeons go in and take out lymph nodes. Can you explain to everyone why uh, that is done?
2: Yeah. The reason that lymph nodes, the lymph nodes are part of the immune system. And the immune system, as we know, kind of protects our body, okay? So you have the lymphatic system that's throughout your entire body. I tell mm-hmm. people you go to the dentist and you have a bad tooth. You, when people talk about the gland swell under their jaw, that's your right. lymph nodes under your jaw. So it's the same thing. So just like your breast, just like your jaw, just like your tooth, you also have lymph nodes under your breast. They're they're under your breast, they're under your, what we call your clavicle, as well as on top of your clavicle. And what that means is, I tell people, it's kind of like the garbage cans in your body, similar to for your tooth. So any germs, bacteria, and unfortunately also cancer cells that are circulating in the breast, okay, can actually drain down into the lymphatic, into your lymph nodes. Remember, it's part of your immune system. So Mm -hmm. the doctor, the surgeon, when he goes in there, he can't just take out the lump and say, okay, we've got this, everything's taken care of. He has to see if it has gotten into the lymph nodes, the lymphatic system, because unfortunately the lymphatic system is a direct connection to the rest of the body and the circulation. So that's actually how cancer cells can spread and become, as we call, metastatic. So it's important to know the status of the lymph nodes under the arm. That's for males and females, for any type of uh, breast cancer. As you said, it's staged based on the involvement of the lymphatic system. If there's more involvement of the lymphatic system, the higher the stage of the cancer. So that's, right. real, that's progno- prognostic information in terms of you know the, the chance of survival, as well as diagnostic information. So it's real important to have that kind of information.
1: Right. It really tells us what to do, and I explain exactly. to my patients a lot. You know, surgery surgery, and radiation are, are local treatment. It treats the tumor, right. the tumor bed, and it treats whatever we uh, decide to treat or aim our beam at. And then sometimes the purpose of well, what I like to lump under systemic treatment, you know, chemotherapy right. and hormonal, is that it treats the disease outside of this particular area. And so, right. because sometimes people ask, well, you know, why do I need chemo? And one of the biggest questions I get from the lay public is, you know, once they find out I'm an oncologist, they say, "Well, which one is better, radiation or chemo?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's right. not that simple. It's it, you know, right. it's not a it's not a choose either or. It depends on right. what 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 you have. Um, and you know, we got about three minutes left, Doctor Gooch. What what sure. um, you know? We talked about the diagnosis. We talked about the stage. talked about the treatment. What is the prognosis? of well, this disease in men
2: well as you said good news bad news if a man is diagnosed early okay
1: mm-hmm.
2: that as soon as they notice some symptoms they get evaluated they get their mammogram they get the surgery the good news is that their prognosis is pretty much the same as women
0: unfortunately
2: okay. that's a good scenario The reality of it is, though, their five-year survival is not as good as for women. Um, It's, unfortunately, 84%. So that means more and more men are being diagnosed at a later stage than women are, and that's the five-year survival. The 10-year survival is only 72%, so that's not what we like to see. We right. want to see in the 80, 85% 10-year survival. So that's, as I mentioned earlier, that's why I believe in treating male breast cancer aggressively. Don't mm. wait until, uh, or as you said, do the either or, we'll do chemo or radiation. Right. No, get right. it from both directions. Get the systemic treatment, because unfortunately, um, well, as you know, as a radiation oncologist, what mm. would usually impact your survival is the spread of disease to other parts of your body. So Take care of the possible systemic spread as well as the local treatment that we do as radiation oncologists.
1: Exactly, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that needs to be taken care of right away. And not to scare anybody, Absolutely. but hey, this is breast cancer awareness month, and I think right. it's great that we were able to squeeze a man in there. No pun intended. You <laughs> thinking about <laughs> you Squeeze a like man into this. <laughs>
2: Dr. Williams.
1: <laughs> I tell you. Well, Dr. Gooch, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I'm so glad you took time out to come on the Weekly Wellness Show and lend to us your expertise in this area.
2: It is more than my pleasure, Dr. Williams. I would love to come back any other time. As I say I think you're one of the most Great. incredible people I ever met. So, oh, if you ever want me to come back, we can have another discussion. It'll be my pleasure.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I greatly appreciate that. And I think we've learned a lot today. And uh, we will definitely look to have you back to talk about another exciting uh, topic. So, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this concludes another episode of the Weekly Wellness Show. If you missed any of this, don't forget to go to our podcast. If you think someone else can benefit from this, don't forget to share the show. So taking us out is a group of jazz artists known as In Groove. So until next week, be healthy, be happy, and be kind.